It's a damn tough life full of toil and strife we weathermen undergo. And we don't give a damn when the gale is done, how hard the winds did blow. Cause we're homeward bound from the Arctic ground with a good ship taut and free. And we won't give a damn when we drink our rum with the girls of old Maui. Rolling down to old Maui, me boys, rolling down to old Maui. We're homeward bound from the Arctic ground, rolling down to old Maui. Welcome to Higgledy Piggledy Whale Statements. I am Mark. And I'm Ben. Uh, today, we are doing chapters 71 through 73. Yep. Uh, we've got some weird opinions about philosophy, some social distancing, and... <laughs> I mean, you're right. It's just... <laughs> uh... Like, what else would you call that? No, you're right. They're like... socializing, they're distancing, there's a plague. No, it is. Like, you're not wrong. It's just... Like... Damn. <laughs> yes. Um... <laughs> Anyway, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, let's get into it. Yep, uh, no, yep. no point in, in just, uh, bullshitting trying to summarize these chapters. I don't think they really, like, uh, hang together in a way that we can yeah, communicate I mean, I think clearly. They continue the narrative, we get another, another other ship's story of Moby Dick. Yeah, I'm just saying I can't think of anything that you could say that's like, this is what these three chapters are about collectively. I don't think that's really... Yeah, I think, I think that's broadly true. There's a bit of a miscellany. Um, we also had to stop before because 74 and 75 are clearly a matched set. Yes, we didn't want to do just 74 and not 75. Huh. Yeah. So, uh, chapter 71. Yep, the Jer- Jeroboam story. Is that Jeroboam or Jeroboam? Jer- Jeroboam? Oh. Jeroboam is how I would pronounce it. Okay. Um. It's, it's another biblical reference. Yes, it is. It is. Uh, in fact, it's uh, another biblical reference to a bad king, much like Ahab. Yes. Uh, since, at least according to PowerMobyDick.com, uh, Jeroboam was a uh, king of Israel who erected golden calves for his people to worship. A famous uh, no-no in the Torah. <laughs> y- yes. Yep. Don't do that. We're against it. Yeah. 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 Um... Yeah, oh, I actually just realized why it's called the Jeroboam. Why? Fascinating. Well, we'll, we'll get to it when we get to Gabriel. Oh yeah, I'm, yeah, that's true. Actually, that seems fairly obvious in a certain sense. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so um, so we ended uh, the last ship or the last chapter. The last chapter, the the chapter of the Sphinx ended with uh, Ahab noticing a boat coming down, a ship coming down upon them with also breeze as Breeze begins to fill the sails of the Pequod. It turns out that ship is the Jeroboam. Yes, uh, and they, um, the Pequod, like, as the, the Pequod can recognize that the other ship is also a whaler, um, based on, you know, just, like, what it looks like. And, and also the fact that it is manned mastheads, which is an interesting little note, but it makes a lot of sense. Like, you don't really need every masthead manned if you're, you know, just looking for other ships. They become pretty obvious pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, whereas if you're looking for whales, and that's the whole point for sailing out, it makes sense that manned mastheads and uh, having boats on deck to lower, all of these are the signs of a whaler. Yep. And so, uh, so they, um, the Pequod puts up a signal, which is to say like a distinctive flag um, that uh, it turns out all American whale ships have like a book 
with all of the flags of the other whale ships recorded in it, so that if something like this happens, they can signal each other and communicate what ships they are and sort of give their signal their intent to communicate generally. Yeah, it's it's a basic naval procedure normally done within a navy. What I'm sad about is that we don't get to find out what the Pegwad's sail uh, sorry, what the Pegwad's flag looks like. Yeah, that's true. I, it is. It would be interesting to know what the Pequod signal is, but we don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's probably Ahab yelling at you. I mean, just well, I, metaphorically speaking. I mean, yes, but like it has to be something that is recognizable from like quite a distance away, right? So it's going to yeah, be probably like, like a, a two-color combination. Yeah, it's going to be like a distinctive, simple geometric thing, as as like ships' signals tend to be. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so they recognize that this is the Jeroboam. Uh, of Nantucket. Yes, another another Nantucket whaler. Um, and the Jeroboam uh, lowers a boat to go, you know, to send over to the Pequod. Um, but when it arrives at the Pequod, uh, the captain, uh, his name is Mayhew, basically, like, waves off the Pequod's attempts to lower a ladder to them. Um uh, yeah, and he, he's communicating, like, basically by shouting across the water, um, uh, and because, well, it turns out the Jeroboam is a plague ship. Yeah, there's an epidemic on board the Jeroboam, uh, and the captain doesn't want to infect the Pequod. Um, although supposedly everyone on the boat is healthy, but, Yeah, you know, there's only they'd have to be to man the oars. Yes, but, but, but he is... You know, the captain is being pretty sensible about this, honestly. Yep. Uh, He's, quote, uh, For though himself and boat's crew remained untainted, and though his ship was half a rifle shot off, and an incorruptible sea and air rolling and flowing between, yet conscientiously adhering to the timid quarantine of the land, he peremptorily refused to come into direct contact with the Pequot, to which I can only say good. I approve. Yeah, Ishmael clearly thinks this is sort of unnecessary. Um, I, I'm, I wonder, like... How much Ishmael really believes in, like... The germ a, theory of disease. Yeah, asymptomatic carriers. Um, yeah, what I'm saying is that um, I'm, I'm... I would not want to hang out with Ishmael in this particular time of, of, of history that we're in right now. <laughs> I mean, yeah, sure. <laughs> um, anyhow, but, but uh, as Ben said, they are able to, like, yell. Uh, the boat is, like, a couple yards away. Um... Although it's kind of, uh, there, in addition to the fact that they've got to yell over the distance, there are also, like, waves that keep coming and, like, pushing the boat away or, like, making noise. Yeah, it's it's not very easy for them to keep up an uninterrupted conversation because the rowers have to maintain speed with the sailing ship and it's a much smaller boat, so it'll get knocked around by the waves, it'll push forward, or I think mostly get pushed forward because the waves are coming from behind them because the uh, Pequod's running with the wind. Um, and so it's, um, it's not very convenient. Yeah. Uh, and they are also occasionally being interrupted by, uh, one of the oarsmen. Um, oh, yes. One of the oarsmen. <laughs> yes. Uh, who is this, uh, like, distinctive character, um, who's, like, recognizable by his, his appearance and his... Yes, his he's dress. he's youngish. He literally described as youngish, which I think is very cute. He's you know not very large. He's very freckly. He's got quote redundant yellow hair, which I assume just means lots of it. it yeah. Um, and he's wearing like an oversized coat with like the sleeves rolled up, 
And um, the important part is that uh, he considers himself the um, uh, Angel Gabriel. Yes. So the, the Pequod recognizes The Archangel him. Gabriel. My bad. Uh, yes. Uh, put some respect on his name. Uh, the Pequod, specifically Stubb, recognizes this Gabriel uh, because uh, they had heard a story about him uh, when they spoke the town ho. You mean when they had a gam? Yes. When they gam. Exactly. Um, and uh, the story about Gabriel that they've heard um, is that he was uh, raised among the Shakers. Um, the Neskayuna Shakers. Well, that's... So the the, uh, the Shakers were founded in Niskayuna, New York. Oh. So that's where they're from. I mean, oh, okay. I, I guess, you so know... So just all, all Shakers. This is a general statement on Shakers. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, presumably there are Shaker settlements in other towns as yeah. well. But, but I think, yes, it's kind of like saying... It, it, I think it just means literally that's where Shakers are from, yes. Yeah. Um, anyhow, and, you know, uh, it's probably worth mentioning the Shakers are, or rather were, it's not a... That unlike Quakers, Shakers, yeah, they're very different denominations. Yes, Shakers no longer exist. Anyway, uh, Sh- Shakerism was like a um, a, a pretty unusual uh, Protestant sect um, that uh, was known for uh, celibacy, absolute celibacy, not yes. just like priests or anything like that. Like literally, none of them had sex in theory, and they certainly didn't have kids. Yeah, the Shakers, um, this is, this is in some sense why there are no Shakers yeah. <laughs> anymore, because, it, you know, in the, um, in the 18th and 19th century, they grew their numbers through adoption. Um, but anyway, um. Yeah, they, um, they were not capable of maintaining replacement, and eventually sort of, I don't, yeah, I don't think there's any, uh, modern Shakers really at all. Yeah, I, I don't If think there are any, and they're listening to this podcast, um, cool, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. The the Shakers are definitely like an interesting, you know, historical movement. Um, but uh, Ishmael, I think, has a pretty low view of them. Yeah, I mean, uh, he, he thinks about Quakers as kind of old fashioned, but very sort of uh, deeply like moral and dedicated Christians. You know, it's it's of interest that Ahab came from a Quaker background. It's a more it's a ge- more general and tuckety thing. But Shakers are depicted as absolutely, uh, at least in the case of Gabriel, and I would say generally as delirious. Yeah, and, and I mean, you know, uh, this this does reflect the fact that, like, Shakers were more, like, marginal in society. They were know? more marginal. They were also more of a, a charismatic sect. I mean, I, the reason they were called Shakers is that they were literally expected to to shake in the presence of the divinity. There was... I mean, yeah, the thing that's funny is that that's also, also why Quakers, Quakers are, are called, called that. Quakers. But, but no, like... But Shakers, they do it more. Yeah, no, like, the, the Shakers did have, like, sort of, um... Uh, ecstatic? Like, yes, and, 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 like, I guess you would call them... Like, I, I don't know what the exact term would be. Like, ceremonies. Um, yeah. That involved, like, movement and, uh, like, not exactly dance, I guess, but, um... Um, uh, shoot, what's the... There's a term for, like, um, ecstatic dance that I cannot remember. I don't think it's called... Always called a tarantella, but it sometimes is. Um... Okay, they did do... They did dance, uh, actually. Okay, that's cool. that's a That's a word that's used to describe their... What they do during worship. Anyway, so... Wikipedia. So, so they have, like, these practices of worship that would be, I think, more unfamiliar to yes. someone like Ishmael. It is funny that according to uh, the Wikipedia article at the top there, um, they were originally called the Shaking Quakers, which to me just sounds 
incredibly redundant. <laughs> but yes. uh, they also had um, one, some positive things about them. They were uh, egalitarian in regards to gender. Um, they had uh, women in spiritual leadership. They had, you know, uh, communal living. Uh, I really like it. They are also known for their simple living, architecture, technological innovation, music, and furniture. And I'm just super curious about that technological innovation, but it's not what we're talking about right now. Yeah, I mean, it's like perhaps one of the remaining uh, cultural influences of Shakerism is that you can still get stuff described as like Shaker furniture. Mm, oh, yeah. Um, Fascinating. We are just looking at the Wikipedia page Yeah, now. no, no. I saw dualism, and I, I was wondering if it was a, a good evil dualism, but it turns out that uh, there is a dualism of God as male and female. Um, yeah. Uh, interpreting Genesis is, so God created him male and female, he created them in his own image, is implying that God is both male and female. Fascinating. Yeah. Um. Oh, and they had a second coming of uh, Jesus in the case of a blacksmith's daughter, it looks like. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating. I, yeah, I don't want to go too deep into just yeah, yeah, reading yeah. the Shaker Wikipedia page, but... Sure, sure. I think it's useful for understanding the context for Gabriel and his description here, which is that he, um, first of all, he considers himself to be the Archangel Gabriel. Mm -hmm. That's important. And secondly, he's, uh, he was, like, considered, quote, a great prophet among the Nescuna Shakers. Yeah, um, and supposedly, as Ishmael puts it, he basically, like, held kind of theatrical ceremonies. Uh, yes. Uh, to, to read it, it's in their cracked secret meetings, having several times descended from heaven by the way of a trap door, announcing the speedy opening of the seventh vial, which is uh, one of the vials opened in uh, the Apocalypse of St. John to uh, release miseries upon the earth. Yeah, that's that's uh, the... He's, he's going to continue to refer to like the seventh vial throughout this chapter, and that means, you know, the coming end times. Um, uh, which also Ishmael suggests, uh, he was actually carrying a vial in his pocket, uh, but, uh, it was full of laudanum. Yeah, I like that he phrases, which instead of containing gunpowder was supposed to be charged with laudanum, with the implication that I guess the seventh vial, be, uh, vial being explosive or destructive should be full of gunpowder. It's a very odd phrase. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> um, I... Something that I can't actually tell from, like, the way that it's talked about here is whether we're meant to believe that Gabriel is himself taking laudanum or whether he is, like... Dosing other people. Yeah, it. like, drugging his audience. Um, like, either seems perfectly plausible because he is portrayed uh, repeatedly uh, described as crazy in this chapter. And um, he's also very charismatic, at yes. least in the effect he has on the sailors around him. Yes. Um, so I find it very very imaginable that he would be uh, taking laudanum himself because mm -hmm. there's this idea that his yeah that he's out of touch with reality. Um, but then also he has this kind of um, he holds this power over other people and is able to like make them believe the things he wants them to believe. And mm -hmm. so like you can also imagine him like drugging other people. Yeah, um, the, the way it's phrased is much more focused on his life. His personal depth of devotion to his own idea. Um, I mean, the laudanum doesn't show up after this one mention, so yeah. it doesn't seem like he actually has it on board uh, the Jeroboam. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I just I don't actually know what Ishmael is trying to imply here. Yeah, I think that I think there's a certain degree of cultural distance going on. Yeah. 
including, you know, basically all of the the assumption that you will recognize that the, the Shakers are just, they're weird. Yes. Uh, anyhow, so he decides at some point um, that he's going to go to Nantucket uh, on a strange apostolic whim. So, you know, he's going out to, like, spread his prophecy via Nantucket. Yes, um, and specifically, he signed up for the uh, Jeroboam's whaling voyage. Uh, and I think it's very interesting that he uh, does kind of the same thing that Ahab does in the sense that he... Oh, good fat. Yeah, um, I'll just quote, uh, With that cunning peculiar to craziness, he assumed a steady, common-sense exterior and offered himself as a green-hand candidate for the Jeroboam's whaling voyage. They engaged him, but straightway upon the ships getting out of sight of land, his insanity broke out in a freshet. He announced himself as the Archangel Gabriel and commanded the captain to jump overboard. So, like, basically just like Ahab, he conceals his madness until he's a, a, on the sea and they can't get away from yeah. him, and then he reveals it. Um, yes, and to much the same effect, but from a different position in the crew. Yes, because uh, basically um, he... Uh, the, the Most of the crew... It seems like basically all the crew or Enough of the crew that it would be a mutiny to go against it. it yeah, a, 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 like a majority of the crew uh, becomes convinced of his claims. And or at least convinced of his claim that he can unleash disaster on the ship if they do anything about it. Yeah, so it's not necessarily that they are all fully converted to his, like, everything he preaches immediately, immediately. But they are all really scared of him and, like, believe that he might have... Powers. Yes, uh, and specifically, he's, um, upon being, upon declaring his sort of beliefs out loud, he's declared basically that he is the, um, the apostle to the ocean, like, that he is, he set himself forth as the deliverer of the isles of the sea and vicar general of all Oceanica. Yes. So there's a very oceanic, you know, uh, seagoing quality to his ministry now, where he's like, he's been seized by this desire to go to sea, and having gone out of sight of land... He declares that he's like the religious representative and apostle to the ocean. Yeah, um, and because the crew are uh, in large part convinced of some degree of his claims and like cowed by him, yes, uh, he, th essentially like a soft mutiny breaks out. Like the captain's authority is seriously undermined, um, and uh, Gabriel is permitted to not do any work and to basically you know, go wherever he wants on the ship, kind of do whatever he wants, and the captain can't do anything about it because if the captain tries to do anything against Gabriel, the crew will definitely mutiny. Yes. Um, uh, the, um... In, in particular... Sorry. Do you no, want no, you go. So the, the specific, like, condition that's made very clear that, like, uh, the crew puts forth directly to the captain is um, if you try to put Gabriel off the ship at the next port, which they understand to be what the captain wants to do, then all the rest of us will desert. Yes, or at least all of his disciples, which seems to be a large part of the crew, or enough of the crew that they can sway the rest. Um, and then also, since the epidemic had broken out, he carried a higher hand than ever, declaring that the plague, as he called it, was at his sole command, nor should it be stayed but according to his good pleasure. The sailors, mostly poor devils, cringed, and some of them fawned before him, in obedience to his instructions, sometimes rendering him personal homage as to a god. Such things may seem incredible, but however wondrous, they are true. Which, come on, Ishmael. Yeah, I think it's very interesting and kind of funny how, like, Ishmael portrays this, you know, uh, uh, swaying of the uh, perspectives of a crew to the, you know, religious 
mission of a madman. Like, this one is ridiculous. And, like, the madman is obviously full of shit from Ishmael's perspective. Like, the, the, mm-hmm. the people who believe him are credulous and um, scared. Poor devils. Yes. Uh, whereas this very, in some sense, similar thing that's happened on the Pequod... Well, Ahab's the captain and a better man than any yes. of us. Yes, I, I think that, yes, the fact that uh, Gabriel has, like, usurped the captain's position has a big, has a lot to do with uh, how this is portrayed. But I also think the fact that, you know, Ishmael believes in Ahab's mission and in Ahab's, like, metaphysics a lot more than he believes in Gabriel. Yeah, well, we'll also see more evidence to why he's willing to give uh, Ahab so much more credence than uh, Gabriel in a little bit, I think. Yeah. So, uh, so this is the, the like, history of Gabriel and what he's doing on the Jeroboam. Yep. Uh, There's also this note that, nor is the history of fanatics half so striking in respect to the measureless self-deception of the fanatic himself as his measureless power of deceiving and bedeviling so many others. But it is time to return to the Pequod. You're just like a... You're doing this on purpose, Melville. Yeah, like, I, I, this, I do think that... I think even Ishmael is aware of the comparison. I just yeah. think he is at pains to... I think Ishmael is at pains to say, yes, these situations may seem similar. Like, there is a dramatic irony here. But understand that, like, Ahab is superior. Yes. Um, yes. And uh, uh, I think, you know, we may... We may imagine that, like, Melville is... More ambiguous. Yes. Um, As he usually is. Yes. Uh, Also, um, yeah, I think one of the things that is a little... One of the things that is definitely quite ambiguous throughout this chapter is just how much Gabriel really believes in the things he's saying. Because, like, Ishmael consistently describes him as crazy, which suggests that... Crazy, craft, self self-deceiving, etc. Which would imply that, like, he genuinely believes that he's a, a prophet and that, like, that is his madness. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, there's definitely a sense that he is, uh, you know, he is not just, like, raving unthinkingly. He clearly uh, knows how to manipulate people, knows how to say and do things that will convince other people that he yes. is powerful. There's there's a line that... um when he looks at the, the sperm whale's head still hanging from the side of the boat, Gabriel was seen eyeing it with rather more apprehensiveness than his archangel na- nature seemed to warrant. Yes. Uh, and I also think, you know, the, the story of him descending from a trapdoor is telling because that does, you know, we, we can't say for sure. Uh, I don't think, like, Ishmael doesn't literally say he was deceiving the other shakers. Yeah, um, yeah. But it does kind of sound like he was... Doing a theatrical performance and presenting himself yeah, as, yeah. like, you know, able to fly or something like that. Yeah, yeah, that, that he was using stagecraft to produce prophecy. Yes, exactly. Um, so, uh, so back to the Pequod. Well, um, back to the, the, yes, the Pequod looking over the water at the boat. Yes, and uh, Ahab uh, declares, uh, I fear not thy epidemic, man. Uh, so he, he doesn't care about the possibility of... Uh, infection and wants Captain Mayhew to come on board. Um, but it's Gabriel who uh, speaks out against that. Um, he, he jumps to his feet uh, and says, Think, think of the fevers, yellow and bilious. Beware of the horrible plague. Uh, <laughs> Thanks, Gabriel. Yeah, um, which, you know, it makes sense. Like the fear yep, yep. of the plague is, is his kind of reins on the crew. So he's yeah. got to maintain that sense that it's, it's truly dangerous, uh, which... Um, Leads to this kind of, like, interrupted speech that I think gives a good sense of, like, the weird 
power struggle or the position that maybe yeah. was in with regards to Gabriel. And also, I think the um, given that the boat keeps being pushed back and forth by the waves, which seem leagued with Gabriel, as the as the narration says, uh, I think that plays into bit to this idea that well, Gabriel he seems obviously you know wildly delirious, uh, a con artist, um, sort of just running around shouting things. And but at the same time, the natural world keeps not backing him up, but making his uh, claims and his effects rather more uh, plausible, either because he's taking advantage of it or because you know weird coincidences are happening. Yeah, yeah. And uh, what what Mayhew says in response to Gabriel like standing up and shouting is, uh, "Gabriel, Gabriel!" cried Captain Mayhew. "Thou must either." But that instant, a headlong wave shot the boat far ahead, and its seethings drowned all speech. So we don't actually know what he's saying here, which is yeah. kind of, I think, resonant with uh, the stuff, the town hose story, where we don't know what Steel Kilt whispered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there's always this breakdown in communication between whale boats. But he's presumably saying something like, you either need to, like, he, he's he's not ordering him directly, right? He's telling him he's what giving he him advice. He's telling him what he needs to do, but he's doing it in some kind of, like, well, okay, you can do what you want as long as you X, Y, and Z, you know. Yeah, like like you can either row or, you know, or don't row, but don't just stand up in the middle of a conversation and yell things when you're supposed to be rowing. Yeah, I think probably, is, is probably what that one was about. Probably something like that. Um, yeah. Meanwhile, uh, Gabriel also has a bit of an opinion when uh, Ahab asks... Hast thou seen the white whale? Yeah, so, you know, as soon as uh, communication is possible again, that's obviously the first thing Ahab asks. Um, and uh, Gabriel cries out, Think! Think of thy whaleboat, stoven and sunk! Beware of the horrible tale! Uh, because uh, Gabriel has, like, a very specific perspective on Moby Dick. Um, oh, yes. Also, um... I should start uh, introduce, uh, like uh, greeting people with "Hast thou seen the white whale?" I think we go over well. God. Uh, so once again, after this outburst, um, Mayhew tries to say something to Gabriel, and he's cut off by a wave moving the boat. Um, and then uh, once the boat is you know close enough to hear from again, Mayhew starts to explain uh, the Jeroboam's experience with Moby Dick, um, mm-hmm. and. Uh, while doing so, is frequently interrupted by Gabriel uh, and the ocean. Yeah, whatever Gabriel, so whatever his name was mentioned, and the crazy, so, uh, sorry, not without frequent interruptions from Gabriel, whenever his name was mentioned, and the crazy sea that seemed leagued with him. Yes. Uh, uh, which is very interesting, given uh, what happens as soon as uh, Gabriel uh, learns about the existence of Moby Dick while uh, while he's on his first whaling voyage. Yes. So, um, so the 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 Jeroboam's Moby Dick story is uh, not long after the Jeroboam left Nantucket, uh, they met another whale ship and learned about the existence of Moby Dick from that whale ship, and you know of some previous disaster caused by uh, the white whale. Exactly. Uh, and Gabriel. Uh, in response to this, warns the captain not to attack the white whale, and, uh, in fact, declares that the white whale is God incarnated. Well, specifically, the white whale no less a being than the shaker God incarnated. There's that specificity of, like, no, it's specifically his God. Yeah, I also think uh, the next clause is worth mentioning, the shaker's receiving the Bible, which I think (laughs) is a way of saying, just so you know, shakers do, shakers 
do use the Bible. Like they are actually, I'm not sure uh, that Ishmael would say that they are Christians, but he just means like they are a they're a, a sect that uses the Bible, even if he hasn't described them as being Christian. Yeah, and like on some level, I think what he means is Shakers are monotheists. Yes. Um. So mm, yeah, that makes sense given his whole Christian versus pagan dichotomy that the Shakers clearly don't fit into comfortably. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. Um, yeah. Like, so... Um, and also, this would be why I think the ship is called the Jeroboam, because this is idolatry. He is literally taking the white whale to be a incarnation of God. Oh, yeah, that's definitely true. I thought you were thinking about Gabriel himself as the false idol, because oh. uh, they are also kind of treating him as a god, yeah, or a divine being. I, I think that... I personally think that the, the question of whether the white whale is uh, agent or principle, as yes. you might say, whether the white whale is in fact divine in nature, simply you know, and an, uh, you know, simply an animal, or some complicated interplay of the natural world and divine power and divine or devilish power, is complicated. Because here, I mean, on some level, from Ahab's perspective, uh, Gabriel's the Satanist. Gabriel's the one who is is the Ophite who has chosen to align himself with uh, the white whale who represents that subtle demonism in the world. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think, you know, um, we have before on this podcast talked about the idea that Ahab, in some sense, views Moby Dick as a divine being, but as, you know, an evil one, as one yes. that he is opposed to. Uh, a um, demiurge. Yes. Uh, and, and so, you know, in this respect as well, Gabriel and Ahab are, quite parallel, or are yes. uh, sort of reflections of each other. Yeah, it, Gabriel is dedicated to this idea that the white whale is, you know, is divine in the positive sense, but Gabriel is also someone who keeps threatening to unleash plague upon his, uh, upon his ship, and in general is, um, you might say, leagued with divinity against sailors and whalers. Yeah, yeah, clearly Gabriel's god is, like, a, a terrifying and vengeful one, um, which, you know, I don't think uh, makes that god any less Protestant, but um. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so a few years later, uh, the Jeroboam actually does cite Moby Dick. Also, can I just say how wild it is that this situation with Gabriel just goes on for years? I like, know. He's just literally on this boat doing whatever he decides to do. And the captain and mates are just, and everyone on board is just living with it for years. Yeah, it, it's pretty wild. And then um, the, the plague, the pestilence must have happened, the epidemic must have happened relatively recently. So even before that, he was a terror. Yeah, God, imagine, imagine like signing on to the Jeroboam at some random port. After the whole Gabriel thing is started. Yes, exactly. Oh, God. And they must be having a hard time getting new people if they, if they hear anything about it. So yeah. at which point they can't get rid of the uh, sailors who have already just bought into Gabriel's thing. Yeah. Um, so... I feel for Mayhew. <laughs> yeah, no, he is clearly in a very difficult situation. Um, like, honestly, if I were him, I, I mean, this is not really a practical thing to do, but I feel like he... If I were him, I would be very tempted to just abandon the ship myself. Yeah. Just be just, like, you know what? I'm gonna get another ship. Like... <laughs> I'll be a mate for a while. It's fine. Yeah. Like, um, I can... I'm sure that he, the thing is, I'm sure he has a ton invested in right. this ship. Like, like, that's the thing. That would he, mean totally abandoning his investment. Yeah. 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 Um, I guess really, uh, 
That's something it would make sense for the mates to do. Oh, yeah. I mean, well, Macy won't get the chance. Right. Well, yes. So and first, I guess also, you know, I guess abandoning a ship in that way as one of the mates would get you a really bad reputation. So you'd have to kind of do what Steel Kilt did and, like, the, escape quickly and yeah, go find a boat that doesn't know about what you did. Ah, uh, the usages and customs of the sea. <laughs> what a lovely place to live. Yeah. Anyhow, so they sight Moby Dick and uh, Macy, the first mate, uh, really wants to hunt Moby Dick. He burned with ardor to encounter him. Yes, and uh, the captain is like, okay, sure. Um, even though Gabriel insists that they don't do this, Macy... Because that's God over there looking all whaley. Yeah, Macy gets gets together enough people to man the boat and goes after him. Which succeed in persuading five men to man his boat in a ship of like, what, 30 or something? That implies Gabriel's just absolutely in charge at this point. Yeah, no, for sure. Uh, I mean, I can imagine even if... Even if not every single man is... Like, is, a believer. Yeah. Like, it'd be pretty difficult if you're one of the minority of Gabriel doubters to feel confident enough to go on that boat. Yeah, that's that's very fair. Um, like, I bet those men might be in danger from their... Yeah, yeah. They, they did, did, after all, try to stab God. Yeah. So, um, regardless, uh, the boat sets off trying to hunt the white whale, um, and they do manage to... Uh, get one iron fast. Which is to say, land one harpoon in Moby Dick. Yep. Who is famously full of harpoons. Yes. Uh, and while they're doing this, Gabriel ascends to the, the main royal masthead. So I guess that... That's, that's the, the that's the main mast, and it's at the very top of the mast. So it's the, the largest mast at the top. Yes, and he was tossing one arm in frantic gestures and hurling forth prophecies of speedy doom to the sacrilegious assailants of his divinity. Uh, which, I mean, yeah, that's what you would have to do in that situation. <laughs> if, yeah. You yeah. know, like, uh, if, if you've prophesied that attacking Moby Dick is attacking God and it means doom, you kind of have, have to... Have to go up and shout that from the rooftops, yeah. Exactly. So, um... Also, um... Oh, shoot, I can't remember if it's... I can't remember the specific thing, but I think Gabriel specifically means God has healed, which is uh, very ironic in the context. I just remembered that thing. Uh... I'm curious about that, so I'm going yep, to look yep, it it's, up. Yep, it's one of those E.L. names. Uh, no. Oh, oh no, it's it's God is my strength. I was thinking of Raphael, I think. All right. Well, I, am, I am not an angelologist. Anyway, so, uh, so, um, Macy is, uh, you know, lancing Moby Dick. So standing in the bow, throwing more harpoons, basically. Yeah, well, whale lances are different. Fine, throwing it la- I mean, simplifying to the art. Throwing, okay, okay. Throwing spikes of metal called whale lances that are meant to try and get the life spot while the harpoon is stuck in the whale so that you're being pulled along with it and you're holding it. Yes, I just feel like, you know, we've read previous chapters where the distinction no, between no, harpoon and right, whale lances. Right. Simplifying everything to harpoons is something Ishmael would tut tut me about in a very reasonable way. Anyhow, um, but so Macy is doing that and, uh, but while he is doing this, um, something, a broad white shadow rose from the sea. I gotta say, it's actually low, a broad white <laughs> shadow rose from the sea. Yes, you're right. You really important. can't miss that. Low. Yes, you're right. That That is important. Um, and I, I think this is probably Moby Dick's tale. It absolutely is. Um, first of all, because uh, it goes on to sort of explain how this kind of accident occurs often with whales. And secondly, earlier Gabriel said, beware of the horrible tail. Yeah, so, but but in this passage, nowhere is it said the tail. It's all described in these sort of vague terms that I think gives you the sense of what it would have been like to be on the boat yes. and just have this, like, shape appear. 
And um, it knocks the breath out of the oarsman, and it knocks Macy off the boat. Not just off the boat, like into the air, fifty yard, landing 50 yards away. So he just gets launched by this tail. It swings across the, the bows of the boat. Everyone's like knocked back by the force of it, taking him off the boat. Nothing else is harmed. Only he is struck. Yes. Uh, and then Ishmael wants us all to know. It is well to parenthesize here. This is actually <laughs> totally normal, just so you know. Um, Nothing is supernatural about this. This happens, well, or rather, if it's supernatural, many whales do this supernatural thing. I think his line is, um, uh, shoot, it's, uh, um, of all the fatal, of the fatal accidents in the sperm whale fishery, this kind is perhaps almost as frequent as any. Sometimes nothing is injured but the man who is thus annihilated. Yeah. And even more than that, he goes on to say, but strangest of all was the circumstance that in more instances than one, when the body has been recovered, not a single mark of violence is discernible, the man being stark dead. Sometimes a whale knocks your soul off. Yeah, yeah. I, now I will say, um, if you are not actually injured in being knocked off the boat, and then you drown. I don't think that's what he means. I, I know, I'm just saying drowning doesn't leave marks on the body. Eh, I mean, it, it leaves obvious marks of like, Desperate desperation for air, and also you wouldn't recover the body because they've sunk. Oh, yeah. I think what he okay, actually that's... means is that their spine got snapped and it's not immediately visible on the body, and nobody here is a doctor. Well, sure. But also, it's Ishmael, so he might just mean sometimes you get hit with a, way, a tail super hard and go flying, but your body's totally intact and your soul has been ejected. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think the phrase I once saw for that is punched the ghost right out of him. <laughs> um,. So, uh, and all of this is visible, uh, from the ship, presumably especially visible to Gabriel. Yes, yes. Uh, and, uh, Gabriel calls out, the vial, the vial, meaning, obviously, the end times are coming. The seventh vial, it has been opened, the wrath is upon you. Uh, and, uh, everyone, uh, totally deceases from any further possible hunting. Um. Also, obviously, after this point, he has even more of a grip on the boat, because he was like, that's God, and then one man decides to go fight God, and that man is utterly destroyed. Yes, uh, and this too, Ishmael is at pains to undermine, because, uh, you know, uh, his credulous disciples believed that he had specifically foreannounced it, instead of only making a general prophecy, which anyone might have done, and so have chanced to hit one of many marks in the wide margin allowed. Which, uh... I'm, I'm pretty on board with Ishmael's position here. Like, all he said was, that's God, don't do it, it's doom, and like, Nearly anyone who has ever heard of the white whale can absolutely say, hunting the white whale will probably get you killed. And, like, he didn't specify, you, Macy, you alone shall be struck down, or anything like that. Whereas if he was a real prophet, I'd expect something a little bit more specific. I mean, this is fair. I do think, I mean, okay, what I will say is that I think that, as has happened many times before, as Ishmael has often credited in this book, mm -hmm. Moby Dick is here acting with, like, supernatural vindictiveness. Yes, and you know? very, and uh, frankly here with incredible forbearance. Like, Moby Dick knows who specifically wants to harm him, and Moby Dick will particularly go after that person. Yes. And, and in a way that I think, you know, when Ishmael is crediting the sort of intelligence of Moby Dick, that is, he understands that to be 
the kind of thing Moby Dick does. Yes. Um. Yeah, I I am perfectly willing to believe at this point in the narrative that Moby Dick did know the specific person on that boat that had that dared to, as Gabriel put it, blaspheme against the white whale and uh, struck him down with a terrible force. I, I'm just more inclined to uh, to the Ophite position that uh, this whale is bad news. Yeah, so, like, the, the, the thing here is, like, that... Basically what I'm saying is I do think that this event and the way that it's being framed is, like... Gothic? Co- communicative, mm-hmm. you know? Symbolic. Symbolic, yes. Um, and it's true that Gabriel did not predict the specific symbolic elements here. Um... But he was the one to say, don't go, don't pursue the white whale. Yes. Um, and, you know, the one to accurately say, if you pursue the white whale, like, terrible vengeance, t- terrible, like, retribution will yeah, befall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, he's totally correct about that. Um, yeah, yeah. In this, in this instance, he is completely correct. And to be fair, in some instances, it didn't require hunting the white whale to be destroyed by it. I think most of the examples we get is someone who went after the white whale and then was destroyed by it. Yes. Anyhow, so, um, Mayhew, uh, tells this story, and Ahab, uh, asks some more questions, which, um, Ahab put such questions to him that the stranger captain could not forbear inquiring whether he intended to hunt the white whale if opportunity should offer. So presumably, Ahab is just like... So where did you see the white whale? When did you see the white whale? Would you say that he had any weaknesses? Uh, <laughs> where did the iron land exactly that it didn't kill him? Yeah. Ex- How do I personally kill God? Yes. Uh, and, you know, Ahab, of course, when asked about his dread purpose, confirms it. Yeah, uh, yep, I... And, uh, of course, this totally sets Gabriel off again. Uh, he jumps to his feet again and uh, yells... Think, think of the blasphemer, dead and down there, beware of the blasphemer's end. Uh, Ahab completely no-sells it. Yeah, Ahab has a a great reaction. Uh, Ahab stolidly turned aside, then said to Mayhew, Captain, I have just bethought me of my letter bag. There is a letter for one of thy officers, if I mistake not. Starbuck, look over the bag. He's just like, I don't- On with the the job. I do not see it. Like, (laughs) uh, I don't care about this. Time for, you know, our clerical duties. Yep. Normal. I have my whale information. Your prophet is noted but ignored. I will, um, I will, uh, you know, do my job. And yeah, uh, there is a letter, in fact. Yes. Um, it's a, it's a damp, moldy, presumably years old letter for Macy. Um. Uh, of such a letter, death himself might well have been the postboy, says Ishmael. Yeah, and I think we have, like, I think it has been mentioned before, but it's worth just touching on again, uh, as Ishmael does, that, like, letters that are sent, that letters for, you know, seamen, for whalers. Especially whalers, yeah. Yeah, are just, you know, you just give your letter to the next whale ship leaving port, and then if that whale ship happens to encounter that ship on the ocean, they'll give that letter over, which means that letters often travel the ocean for years and may never make their way to the... There's actually, there's a whole culture of... Uh, of the time and of tall ships in general, of the uh, the motion of letters like that. Um, one of my favorite sea shanties includes uh, a a warship declaring that this um, merchant ship passing them by turned out to be a pirate. But you know, has to um, uh, back up their topsails and heave their vessel too, which is to say, lose speed, lose maneuverability, and uh, come by our side, for we have got some letters to be carried home by you. It's like it's a, it's a widespread practice that. 
anyone within the general marine world of a particular uh, you know, culture, society, generally agreeing on the rules, will try and trade letters around or like, okay, the boat's heading in this direction. We think the boat we're trying to get this letter to is in that direction. We'll hand over letters to them and so on. So it's very much, like, it's not just that you put your letters on one boat, and if that boat crosses paths with the boat it's supposed to have, it'll send letters over. You'll also get things like transfers of letters, because one boat is returning to Nantucket, it needs to transfer all their undelivered mail to a boat still heading out to the uh, whaling grounds. Because obviously, yeah. if you go back to Nantucket, you don't need a letter, you just say, yes, I didn't get it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, uh, in fact, not only is this, like, a years-old letter for Macy, uh, it have also, uh, based on the handwriting, suspects that it was sent by his wife, uh, which is just sad. Um, yeah, no, it really is. Um, meanwhile, uh, you know, Ahab's reading at Starbucks, setting up a pole to uh, hand it across the gap without, um, without making any contact with Mayhew. Yeah, and uh, Gabriel is, uh, you know, incensed by this and tells him to keep the letter. Uh, keep it thyself. Thou art soon going that way. Um, to hell! Yes, uh, and so, you know, Ahab uh, curses him. Uh, he specifically says, Curses throttle thee, yelled Ahab. Yeah. Captain Mayhew, stand by now to receive it. Yeah, so he, he sticks the letter in the end of a pole and hands it over to Mayhew. Um, but at that very moment, uh, as he did so, the oarsmen expectantly desisted from rowing. The boat drifted a little toward the ship's stern, so that, as if by magic, the letter suddenly ranged along with Gabriel's eager hand. Uh, so Gabriel grabs the letter, uh, stabs it, impales it on a knife. Specifically the boat knife, which would be like, you know, the knife for general cutting of lines and general usage that's in the uh, uh, whale boat. And throws it back to the Pequod. Uh, and then... It, uh, fall, it, it fell at Ahab's feet. Yes. And then uh, Gabriel uh, call shrieks for the oarsmen to row, and they all row off, uh, presumably against what the captain Yeah, it's explicitly, and in that matter, the mutinous boat rapidly shot away from the Pequod. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, ends with, like, a very, you know, dramatic and kind of disturbing little exchange. A letter to a dead man impaled on a knife, landing at Ahab's feet. A man who was killed by the white whale. Yeah, um, um... and after this interlude, the seamen returned their work upon the jacket of the whale. Many strange things were hinted in reference to this wild affair. I'm like, yeah, I should expect so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Seems like the kind of thing that's going to make gossip happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I definitely think it's it's very notable that uh, not only do the oarsmen, you know, follow Gabriel's order to row off in the Pequod, but they also, you know, as if by magic... Uh, stop rowing at just the right moment for Gabriel to be able to grab the letter. Um, so it's not it, it's not just literally that Gabriel can give them orders and they'll follow them, but it almost seems like he can, like, unspeakingly communicate what he wants to them and they can, you know, because, like, moving yeah, yeah, the boat... I'm... Well, moving the boat in that precise way sounds like something that it wouldn't really be that possible to do. So it's almost presented as, like, they coincidentally stopped rowing, but that... You know, that coincidence or whatever. Allowed Gabriel to get the letter first, and then he, you know, knifes it and throws it back. Yeah, it's almost as if the, the oarsman stopping rowing in that moment is, is similar to, like, the waves. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it broadly is, is that Gabriel just keep The world keeps conspiring to give Gabriel what he wants, and Mayhew is powerless to stop it. Yes. 
you know, it's it's almost as though he has leagued himself with a terrible and infernal power that must be slain with a harpoon. That would be definitely one way of interpreting this. I'm just saying, uh, I come out of this chapter with only greater confidence in Ahab. Yeah, yeah, no, for sure. Um, <sighs> yeah, no, it's a great chapter. It's a great exchange. Yeah, it's, it's wild, it's religious, it's irreligious, and uh, Ahab gets to... Uh, I mean, effectively, this is a priest of Moby Dick. Yeah. Where Ahab gets to uh, tell to shut up. Yeah. No, you're right. He totally is. He is a he is a priest of Moby Dick. That's a great way of putting it. Um, oh, well, um, maybe even a messenger. You might say an angel of Moby Dick. Mm, yeah, could also, be. Also, this is just a minor thing that I wanted to reference because I don't... I wanted you to check it on Power of Moby Dick, uh, but I forgot as you're going past, which is when talking about his coat, uh, oh, Gabriel's yeah. coat, there's a mention that he has a Kabbalistically cut coat, and I have no idea what that is supposed to mean. So Kabbalistically, I mean, okay, so the the like origin of that word is referring to the idea of Kabbalah, which is a you know a, a like an a form of uh, it's a, it's a form of Jewish mysticism. Yeah, a traditional that like has been Jewish appropriated by Christian mystics plenty and so on. You know, it might also be referring just to is Kabbalah descended from Kabbalah. Uh oh, I'm not sure. Because Kabbalistically might here also be actually meant to be. As one who is in a cabal. You could be right. I may be projecting. Um, I, I just want to look up. I mean, know. just etymology of cabal. Yeah, yeah. Because um, there's. Well, don't look up Kabbalistic. Well, I, I want the etymology of. Yeah, okay. Kabbalistic comes from Kabbalistic with a capital K, which yeah, is but, obviously relating to Kabbalah. But uh, Kabbalah is know... also a separate word that he might be referencing here, especially given Ishmael's. Yeah, occasionally sketchy understanding of religious history non that is not Christian. Uh yeah, it looks like Yeah, yeah, it looks like um Cabal comes from uh the Kabbalah. Um Well Oh mm, fascinating. I think that hmm This is a little complicated. I'm not totally okay, No, yeah. it looks as though it's from the Kabbalah, but then there was also a conspiracy in 1600s England, or rather, a set of ministers accused of making a conspiracy whose names uh, of in of the ministers of Charles II, Clifford, Arlington, Buckingham, Ashley, and Lauderdale, which got combined to make Cabal, presumably by the political cartoonists of the time. I, I have no idea who would have done that. But that made Cabal, which then became sort of a separate word from Kabbalah, or descended from Kabbalah, because in the 1500s, Kabbalah was just used to mean mystical interpretation of the Testament, according to etymology.com, which is uh, to say the Kabbalah. Okay, so there's a lot of etymological, a lot of etymological complexity here. Um, but it does descend from Kabbalah. Yes, but the uh, the way that uh, Ishmael is using the word here, the way that Melville is using the word yes. here, I don't think there's necessarily any intended implication of Jewishness. No, um, what it what the word, like, Kabbalistically literally means is just sort of, like, in a way that evokes, like, a secret cult. A, yeah, a cabal. Yes. Um, so, well, so specifically shakers a, here. Specifically a religious one. Kabbalistically yeah, yeah. does imply, like, the religious connotations in a way that the modern word cabal doesn't necessarily. Mm, yeah, that makes um, sense. But, uh, what he, but the meaning of the coat is that there is, like, a specific type of coat that, like, a, a New England... 
preacher oh, would have worn okay. at the time. Yeah, well, um, that makes sense for Gabriel. So, yeah, he looks, like, I, I think it's that by his dress, you can recognize him as not necessarily specifically a shaker, but, like, one of the many different New, New England, England religious sets. movements. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, uh, anyway, sorry to, uh, you know, get us off track for a bit. No, We've no. we got to get to 72. It is, of, I think it is of, of great relevance to, like, delve into what exactly <laughs> is meant by that word here, because, you know, the idea of um, secretive religious sects is obviously relevant to this yeah, chapter and yeah. relevant Not to... Not so much to 72, though, yes. but yes. Uh, uh, sorry, when you said this chapter, I was already, my brain had already moved forward, so it was like, oh, the monkey rope? Really? No, no. Um, <laughs> but no, no, to the Jeroboam story, it absolutely is. Yes, uh, but no, uh, let us now move on to chapter 72, the, mon- the monkey rope, uh, which starts with Ishmael excusing himself for putting his story in confusing order. Again? <laughs> yes. I'm just saying, my thesis gets ever stronger. Yeah, no, I, you're, you're convincing me at this point. Um, <sighs> what he says, uh... In the tumultuous business of cutting in and attending to a whale, there is much running backwards and forwards among the crew. Now hands are wanted here, and then again hands are wanted there. There is no staying in any one place, for at one and the same time everything has to be done everywhere. It is much the same with him who endeavors the description of the sea. We must now now retrace our way a little. So he's basically saying, because everyone is moving back and forth and doing everything at once when you're working on the whale, that's why I'm now moving back in time. But at the same time, it's just like, you just told the entire Jeroboam story. You could have walked us through, you know, maybe a little bit of asynchronicity would have to, of a chronological telling would have had to occur. But you could have walked us through the processing of the whale significantly earlier than this and not left us in the dark about the thing you're about to describe. Yes. Which he, he states as though we should all have been thinking this. It was mentioned that upon first breaking ground in the whale's back, the blubber hook was inserted into the original hole there cut by the spades of the mates. But how did so clumsy and weighty a mass as that same hook get fixed in that hole? It was inserted there by my particular friend Queequeg, oh, your particular friend Queequeg, <laughs> whose duty it was, as Harpenier, to descend upon the monster's back for the special purpose referred to. And, like, I guess that was a thing someone could be wondering, but I thought he was pretty clear about it at the time. Yeah, I definitely was just picturing the hook being sort of dangled and somehow maneuvered into the hole. Yeah, I mean, got a pole, maybe have sent one person down, like, Something we'll do nowadays is uh, you might see a construction worker like standing on a hook to yeah. like you know jump down onto the thing, get the hook in, and then stands on the hook again as it gets lifted. Yeah. Um, so you know, I I wasn't particularly wondering about this yeah, email, but yeah. thank you for clarifying it. <laughs> I do think it's very funny the way that he almost seems like he's name dropping Queequeg. <laughs> oh yeah, who's Queequeg, my particular friend. Just so you know, I know Queequeg. He's um, a friend of the cannibals. You might not know about it. You yeah. might not have met him, but uh, I'm sure you've heard of him. He does such impressive things as, like, putting the lover hook into a whale. Uh, I know. You're pretty impressed. So am he I. He throws lances real well. <laughs> um, please, Ben. He throws harpoons. Uh, we wish he right, got... Right. He throws the harpoon, but he doesn't get to throw the lances because that's the whole thing about the harpooner's job that <laughs> Ishmael is having problems with. Oh, God. I'm tired. <laughs> So, um, as it turns out, uh, inserting the whale hook into the, or the blubber hook into the whale, um, once you've done that, uh, for whatever reason, just because of the circumstances, the person who does that may be required to just stay on the whale until they're done, uh, cutting all the blubber off. I think it's just basically to make sure that they just have hands down on the whale. Yeah, I also imagine it's part of it has to do with like 
that it might be sort of complicated to lift the person back up onto the ship when, like, the entire ship is engaged in this very complicated... Yeah, thing. yeah, might, that might be the case. Oh, so, man, but this does mean Ishmael avoided being on the capstan, which we assumed oh, he was on. that's true. Yeah, we previously guessed about what Ishmael was doing during the cutting in, and we were wrong. <laughs> yeah, no, he was doing something much odder and more specific to the pack bar. Anyway, so, um... So, uh... In this case, Queequeg had to stay on the whale during the entire blubber stripping process. Um, and, uh, this is a pretty, like, difficult task on its own, because the whale is mostly underwater, and it is rotating. Um. And there's a bunch of blood. Yeah, and a bunch of sharks. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's not great. Yeah, um, and, uh, and Queequeg is... Queequeg is bottomless at this time, by the yes, way. Yes, yes. Uh, on the occasion in question, Queequeg figured in the Highland costume, a shirt and socks, in which, to my eyes at least, he appeared to uncommon advantage. And no one had a better chance to observe him, as will presently be seen. Yes, I get it, your boyfriend's hot. <laughs> yeah, like... The... He's got good legs, I get it. Yeah, like he is simply saying to us at this point that Queequeg's legs were visible, and I think that was nice. I think that was appealing. <laughs> <laughs> he appeared to, un and better than most people, he appeared to uncommon advantage. Yes, uh, so... Ishmael is a, is a connoisseur in this. Yes, um, so the reason Ishmael is in a particularly good, good position to observe this is that he is uh, attached to Queequeg by a rope uh, called the monkey rope. And emotions. But, yes, but in this moment, <laughs> attached by a rope, uh, it, which is tied both to Queequeg's belt and to Ishmael's. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, the purpose of this is is to keep Queequeg from, you know... Falling in the water and being lost. Exactly. And Ishmael is supposed to kind of, like, jerk up on the rope and, like, kind of pull Queequeg out of the water if he seems in danger of falling in. Um, and uh, Ishmael describes this also as, Queequeg was my own inseparable twin brother, nor could I in any way get rid of the dangerous liabilities which the hempen bond entailed. Because apparently both usage and honor demanded that instead of cutting the cord, it should drag me down in his wake if Queequeg should slip and fall. Yes. Uh, and, and this uh, all sort of uh, gives rise to a lot of thoughts in Ishmael. What doesn't? I mean, yeah. <laughs> like, this is just, every time he and Queequeg are doing a thing, it becomes a metaphor. Like, that, yeah. he, he's just like, oh, there's Queequeg. Metaphor time. Yeah. Like, remember that time he was like, ah, yes, fate, chance, and free will are the objects involved in making this uh, rope mat. And now he's like, hmm, this makes me think about metaphysical jeopardy, individuality, and the fabric of society. Meanwhile, Queequeg is presumably going, please don't let me get dropped into sharks, Ishmael. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he, um, the first sort of thing that occurs to Ishmael watching this is you know, that because he is now in the situation where if Queequeg dies, he dies, um, that his his individuality and his free will have, like, been severely compromised. Yes, he explicitly says, My free will had received a mortal wound. Another's mistake or misfortune might plunge innocent me into unmerited disaster and death. Therefore, I saw that here was a sort of interregnum in providence, for its even-handed equity never could sanction so gross an injustice, or never could have sanctioned so gross an injustice. Yeah, so so Ishmael is seeing this as, like, 
you know, God is gone from this place. Yeah, unnatural. Because I'm on a rope. Yeah, um, like that. That somebody essentially the idea that someone could die when they had done nothing to deserve it is. And he's clearly metaphorizing this: the idea of like moral, uh, moral condemnation. Yes. Like I, through no fault of my own, might fail or be seen as having been lost. You might be dragged down into the exactly. Death. Yes. However, um, as you know, he's continuing to think about this and continuing to like pull jerk uh, Queequeg out of the water. So specifically, I really love the construction of the sentence. And yet, still further pondering, hyphen, while I jerked him now and then from between the whale and the ship, which would threaten to jam him, which in this case would mean just crushing him between the... This is a really dangerous thing, actually. For example, you are docking a medium-sized or even a large boat at the docks. Um, It's really important that nobody drop down between the dock and the boat, because if you're in there and the two things move together, you will just get crushed. Yeah. Um, this is also why you don't try and come up between the two. If you do fall down between there, PSA, swim down. Um, like, swim down under the dock and across, or swim down away from the boat and the dock, and then try and come up aside them. You just don't try and pop your head back up between them, because it's precisely at the top level of the water where your head would be that the two can smash together. Yes. Uh, anyway, hyphen, still further pondering, I said. Yeah, exactly. This is why the construction is so great. Yes. He's like, I was thinking about it. Whoops, Queequeg almost died. And I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and it then occurs to him that actually, this is the situation that everyone is in all the time. Because we are all, like, dependent on other people in our society. We um, live in a society. Yes. Uh, as he puts it, if your banker breaks, you snap. If your apothecary, by mistake, sends you poison in your pills, you die. Um, and, you know, he's perfectly right. Like, yeah, no, um, uh, we we live in a system of what requires, even within a, a deeply broken and dysfunctional society, a deep web of trust that allows us to assume that things like the food we get served at a restaurant is going to be edible, that, you know, the, a car on the highway won't randomly just swerve and take us all out. And if you think about it, it's really anxiety-inducing. Yeah, yeah, um... And, uh, you know, uh, I think, I I think that, um, you know, uh, this is honestly in some ways Ishmael kind of realizing that his trust in Providence and his trust that if you, like, do the right thing, you will be safe and rewarded. Like, that seems to be something that he kind of unthinkingly assumed. Mm -hmm. And then in, in, over the course of this thought process, he's going, wait, that's not really true. Um, yeah, I, I think there's some of that, definitely. Like, he says, nor could I possibly forget that, do what I would, I only have the management of one end of the rope. Uh, I, I paraphrase slightly there. Yeah. But he also mentions that, you know, true, you may say that by exceeding caution, you may possibly escape these and the multitudinous other evil chances of life. So, like, yes, you could go live in the woods and rely entirely on yourself and carefully remove yourself from all human society so that if anything happens to you, only you are responsible. It is never possible that someone else's screw-up could get you. But, um, sounds miserable. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he also notes, by the way, in a footnote here, that actually the particular situation he's in is specific to the Pequod, uh, because, um, it, it's all... The monkey rope is found in all whalers, so every whale ship has something like this, where somebody has a rope tied to the person who's... Uh, on the whale. On the whale. However, uh... Actually tying 
another person. Yeah, physically tying the end of the rope to the person on the on the ship, as opposed to presumably just having them like hold it. Yeah, or tying it onto the ship in another way and having them manage themselves. Yeah, um, that's unique to the Pequod. It is Stubb's innovation. Um, <laughs> you know, to ensure that the Harpenier is safest. I'm sure Stubb also thinks it's really funny. Yeah, the, specifically, uh, in order to afford to the imperiled Harpenier the strongest possible guarantee for the faithfulness and vigilance of his monkey rope holder. I gotta say, Ishmael was like, I'm Joker mode Ishmael now in the hyena. Stubb <laughs> has been Joker mode this entire book. Yes. Um, I, I mean, uh, Stubb is like that with other people's lives. Yeah, but he does also wail. So that, uh, Sure, that's true. Yeah, he's, he's big. He's... And also, let's be clear, it's not like the Joker isn't getting other people killed, mostly. Yes, Whatever I, version you look at. I was trying to contrast between Ishmael and stuff, yeah, but no, fair enough, you fair are enough. perfectly correct. Anyway, um, yeah, it's just, uh, I, I, I think it's very funny that, like, this is in, this particular way of managing it ha- has been introduced specifically to increase the danger yes. to the person holding one yes. in the rope. <laughs> to motivate yeah, that person. Yeah, yeah, no. And I guarantee Stubb is standing nearby going, <laughs> yeah, yeah, almost certainly. Uh, uh, actually, sardonic no, I, I mean, so he may be oh, like right, chuckling, but, but he's busy. He's, yeah, he's, yeah, uh, Stubb is the one who's running around doing everything, so this is his way. Well, also, specifically, I think Stubb and, uh, Stubb and Starbuck are using whale spades to cut the blubber, if I recall. Oh, yeah, I suppose that might be happening at this very moment. I thought they just did that when they started up the strip, and after that, the strip would sort of No, it was explicit. If I recall correctly, it was explicitly specified that they have to keep cutting the side okay, of the strip. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, Look, there's a lot of moving parts here. You can't blame me that I get some of them out of order. Yeah, no, I, I certainly do not. <laughs> um, so, uh, it is at this point, we previously mentioned the sharks, but they actually don't come into the chapter until this point, where Ishmael says, you know, I was pulling Queequeg up out of the water periodically, but in addition to the danger of falling in and being crushed between the whale and the ship, he was also in danger from all these sharks. Yeah, there's a lot of sharks. Um, and they are, you know, they are swarming in particular right now because stripping the whale means there's a yep. lot more blood. So um, I'm going. But thankfully, that also means that they're not about to chomp down the leg when there's a whole whale right there. Yes, um, they, they do prefer, it seems, like dead prey. Um, but I mean, or... They say such prey is a dead whale, which I feel like there's more meat on it. There's no chance of it getting away. There's a lot of reasons why you want to go eat a dead whale. Yeah, fair enough. Um, but, you Quote know. stuff. But, but they're, uh, <laughs> their sharp jaws are still right there, so. Yes, yes, yes. And Queequeg will later have an unfortunate moment with one of them. Yes. Um, God, this is all told out of order in a way that makes it really hard to track things. Hmm, what are his fault that is, Ishmael? Oh, yeah, when you say Queequeg will later have... You're talking about the time when they pulled a dead shark. Exactly, and that seems to have happened after most of the whale... Like, during the funeral or in the lead-up to the the removal of the the whale carcass entirely, which has to be after he came back up, not before. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Unless they brought it up during the night before they started the cutting in, because this is in the morning. So they could, in theory, have already brought the shark up and had it quick way do it, and now he's gone down with an injury to his hand um, from the whale. But that doesn't seem plausible. I have no idea. Ishmael, get your goddamn timeline at least competent. Yeah. Um, so on account of all these sharks, uh, Tashtigo and Dagu are helpfully stabbing them with whale spades. Yep, um, yep. Which, you know... We, we established that you, you try and get them in the head, and you uh, you stick in this very sharp, very long tool, and um, 
Also, Queequeg's right there. Yes. Uh, they meant Queequeg's best happiness, I admit. But in their hasty zeal to befriend him, and from the circumstance that both he and the sharks were at times half-hidden by the blood-muddied water, those indiscreet spades of theirs would come nearer to amputating a leg than a tail. Uh, uh, yeah, and um, Queequeg is like putting the iron hook in at this moment in time, half submerged, surrounded by blood and sharks, uh, and stabbing spades. And he's just like, uh, as Ishmael suggests, he is just praying to Yojo, his, um, his god, and trying to just survive and get that hook in. Yes. Uh, although uh, Ishmael does say, I suppose. Yeah, yeah he so, doesn't know for definite. Quigwake's presumably not saying anything because he's saving all his breath for stabbing that hook into that whale. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, philosophically, uh, Ishmael's like, wow, well, I guess this is just how everyone is in life, you know? Like, life is the ocean, and it's like, your enemies are these sharks, and then your friends are these people who are trying to help you, but they're very close to actually killing you, and ain't that just the way? Yeah, and what, between sharks and spades, you were in a sad pickle and peril, poor lad. Meanwhile, he's occasionally going, yoink, <laughs> yeah. jerk, uh, you know, oh, whoa, watch out for that shark, watch out for that, that you know, gap, and uh, I gotta say, I can't imagine Queequeg appreciate the perspective. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, imagine Ishmael, like, explaining all this to Queequeg later, and Queequeg being like, that's what you were thinking about? Yeah, especially after what happens next. Yes. So, the the next thing that happens is, um... Uh, well, Queequeg's alive, first of all. Big, important thing. He has succeeded in this. You know, there is good cheer in store for you, Queequeg. For now, as with blue lips and bloodshot eyes, the exhausted savage at the last climbs up the chains and stands all dripping and involuntarily trembling over the side. The steward advances, and with a benevolent, consolatory glance, hands him... What? What is it, Mark? Uh, so, uh, clearly under normal circumstances, you would get some grog at this point. Uh, but instead, the steward hands him ginger and water. So, like, I guess basically a cup of, like, ginger, ginger tea. tea. Yeah, it's, it's ginger tea. It's, like, ginger that's been steeped in water. It's not the alcohol. It's probably stronger than grog. Probably, like, the, the, the base thing that you water down to make the grog. Yeah. he's just been in an ocean. He's just been among sharks. He's been trying very hard. He's not, he's, like, shaking. He's not doing great. He deserves, he deserves a drink, frankly. Yeah, a hot uh, drink. Yes. Uh, but and, not, uh this. Yeah, Stubb is absolutely infuriated, and this is one of those times where Stubb being an asshole feels a little more justified, although yeah. although he's directing it at kind of, you know... The wrong person. Yeah, it's not the steward's fault, but uh, Stubb is like incensed and like questioning the steward uh, at, at length about like, what is this? Like, what the hell are you trying to serve? Why do I this? smell ginger? Is ginger the sort of fuel you use, Doughboy, to kindle a fire in this shivering cannibal? Ginger. What the devil is ginger? Sea coal, firewood, lucifer matches, tinder, gunpowder? What the devil is ginger, I say, that you offer this cup to our poor Queequeg here? Yes. Uh, and, uh, you oh. know, he even, he goes to the, he goes to the extent of, like, showing it to Starbuck and being like, smell this, Starbuck. What do you think is going on here? And Starbuck is like, yeah, that, that seems pretty bad. I trust not, said Starbuck. It is poor stuff enough. Um, and when Starbuck thinks something is weak tea, you know it's weak tea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it turns out this is all Aunt Charity's fault. Uh, yes, uh, when when Stubb says there is some sneaking temperance society movement about this business, he's completely correct. Yes, Aunt Charity uh, strictly ordered 
uh, Doughboy, the steward, only to give uh, Ginger to the Harpeneer. What he called what she called Ginger Job. Yeah, it it sounds from the way that he phrases it. What he specifically said is. It was Aunt Charity that brought the ginger on board and bade me never give the harpoonier any spirits, but only this ginger chub, so she called it. So it, the way that he puts it, he doesn't say the harpooners. It sounds like maybe Aunt Charity had a specific problem with Queequeg. Yeah, or, um, yeah, no, given that it is singular, it might be that she was specifically like, oh, that's a cannibal. You can't give the cannibals alcohol. Uh, yeah, uh. Like, look, we don't know. Aunt Charity barely appears in this book. I think when she did appear, we commented on how she's not really a character. She's just a name and a, and a general caricature. Yes. <laughs> and she continues to be that long after she is banished from the narrative as a like complete person. Yes. Uh, so, you know, uh, Stubb berates the steward and tells him to uh, get out of here and never do this again. Um, uh, and, you know, hits him, which Starbuck's like, hey, enough of that. Um, also, I love I love Stubb's statement about his uh, his hitting. <laughs> uh, you know, oh, I never hurt when I hit, except when I hit a whale or something of that sort. And this fellow's a weasel. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Starbuck is like, okay, well, fine. If you go get it yourself, if you feel so strongly, which he does uh, to his credit. Yep, yep. He gets uh, he gets a dark flask in one hand and a sort of tea caddy in the other, which contains uh, Aunt Cherry's uh, ginger job and the makings thereof. And that, he pitches over the side. Yes, and Queequeg gets his drink. Yep. Also, I gotta say, uh, I don't think the sharks appreciated the ginger. <laughs> Maybe it will help them be, you know, more... Uh, more more uh, temperate. More, yeah. more Christian. Yeah, That's exactly. the essence of Christianity. Exactly. We, we are, in fact, giving more Christianity to the sharks uh, with this particular whale feast. Yes. And that is, uh, that is the monkey room. Yep. 72. That's the monkey rope. Uh, once again, in case you were wondering, Queequeg is very cool. He's very admirable. And uh, everyone should be nicer to him. He should, he should get grog. Uh, he should uh, get treated nicely. And uh, it should be understood that he looks really good. Yes. Um. So the, And then after that, we have uh, chapter 73, which, by the way, we got another whale. Because it's called Stub and Flask Kill a Right Whale and then have a talk over him. Yes. So, uh, Ishmael starts with a chapter by just sort of ominously reminding you there is a sperm whale's head hanging on the Pequod. Just, like, rocking there, partially in the water. Anyway, uh, let's just leave it there, uh, and hope it doesn't fall overboard. Yeah, yeah, I love the line here. The best we can do now for the head is to pray heaven the tackles may hold. Yeah. I, I feel that way about some things in life. Yeah. So, um... The Pequod has now entered uh, an area, another area of Brit. Um, Which, as you may recall, is a thing right whales eat. Yes, so this, you know, indicates uh, that there's probably some right whales around. And uh, surprisingly enough, um, even though they have not been hunting right whales this whole time, and it, it, they're, they're a sperm whaler, like people basically, I think, don't really hunt right whales anymore. Yeah, yeah, and specifically, it's also stated that the Pequod was not commissioned to cruise for them at all. Um, they weren't at all, she's not at all being paid to hunt right whales, she's being paid to hunt much more lucrative sperm whale. Yeah, so despite all these reasons that you would never normally hunt a right whale, uh, the order is given out that they are going to hunt a right whale today, mm -hmm. um, if they can. Uh, and indeed, they do spot some, 
and they go after them with Stub and Flask's boats. Yeah, I know that it's not like a full four-boat. Captain Ahab is not lowering himself to lower for a sperm whale. Yeah, they're not they're not going out in full force, but nonetheless. Do you see what I did there? Lowering himself to lower for a sperm whale? <sighs> God. Because he is lowering himself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, um, they go after the sperm whale. The actual uh, process of hunting it is a little involved because um, both boats... Uh, both boats make, uh, make fast and, you know, are attached to the whale. Um, and the, the whale comes back towards the Pequod. Um, yes, fleeing from the, the harpoons. Which, you know, puts the boats in danger of actually being, like... Smashed against it. Yeah, smashed against the hull. Um, but, uh, instead of that happening, uh, the whale, when it is getting close to the Pequod and seems as though it might, like, ram the Pequod, instead it dives, uh... And then there's the possibility that it's going to dive under the Pequod and pull the boats against the hull that way. But they manage, mm-hmm. basically it seems like it was a very tricky bit of maneuvering. Um, yeah, they have to throw out more line rapidly so that they so that it can sound further without pulling them underwater or pulling them against the Pequod. And they have to row very hard to stay ahead of the ship. Yes, in order to move their sh- and not be dragged into it. But they manage it, so they yes. pop out behind it. Yes, uh, and then... Uh, as they're, it basically, the the whale, like, pulls the ships around the Pequod several times. Uh, so, uh, they, they, they circle the Pequod. Um, I think cl- only one time. Performed a complete circuit, but not multiple. Uh, well, thus round and round the Pequod, the battle went. Mm, okay, okay. So, yes, they... They pull closer after that first circuit, and now they're lancing it. And also the sharks are coming off of the uh, sperm whale's corpse to uh, attack the um, uh, the dying right whale. Yes. Uh-huh. And uh, Stub and Flask are lancing it, and they manage to kill it. Yep, there's a nice little metaphor here um, uh, about the, the sharks running to the, the blood, drinking thirstily at every new gash, as the eager Israelites did at the new bursting fountains that poured from the smitten rock. Yeah, that's uh that's an event in Exodus where uh Moses uh strikes at the at God's command Moses strikes a rock with his staff and fresh water comes out. Yep, made a spring. Yeah. And then at last his spout grew thick and with a frightful roll and vomit he turned upon his back a corpse. Yes. Uh and uh then ensues the the talk over him as yep, we were yep. told um because Stub and Flask are, you know, they're they're busy uh you know, tying up the whale and such Preparing a... for the intense act of rowing the whale back to the ship. Exactly. Uh, and uh, Stubb is like, what the hell are we doing? I wonder what the old man wants with this lump of foul lard. Um, <sighs> which, I mean, you know, honestly a fair question because... Yeah, yeah, I just feel it's very mean to the right whale. <laughs> yeah, clearly, clearly... You just killed him. You don't have to call him a lump of foul lard. <laughs> uh, so... Response to that, Flask offers a, a a striking theory, which is that apparently there is a legend that if a ship hoists a sperm whale's head on her starboard, and at the same time a right whale on her port, uh, here called larboard, yes, here called larboard, uh, the ship is ever afterwards immune to capsizing. Yep, cannot be knocked over. And uh, Stubb is like, oh really? Uh, why? <laughs> And Flask is like, well, I, I don't know, but I heard Fidala say that, and he seems to know all about magic. 
Yep, yep, he knows all about ships' charms. And sometimes I, but sometimes think he'll charm the ship to no good at last. Yeah. So they, they then get very, um, suspicious and very racist about Fidala. Yeah, they are basically speculating on, like, Fidala's dark magic. And in fact, Stubbs says, uh, I think he's the devil in disguise. Yep, but literally speculating, I don't think he's human. Yeah. Um, they sort of talk about how he hides his hooves and his tail. Yep, yep, yep. And uh, how there must be some kind of bargain or deal between Ahab and this, you know, interpretation of Fidala. Yeah, and, and, and this sort of falls into Stubb uh, proposing a, a, an extended theory about exactly what is going on here. And uh, Flask kind of, um, you know, being his sort of, like, helpful questioner who keeps asking, like, after everything Stubb says, like, oh, and what about this? And, like, what do you mean by that? Um Basically, uh, Stubbs' theory, as he lays it out, is that Ahab is planning on trading his soul for, you know, Moby Dick. Presumably for, you know, the chance and the ability to kill Moby mm-hmm. Dick. Yeah. Um, and uh, Stubb uh, describes a story about um, the devil making a kind of similar trade with a, with a governor on a flagship. Um, where, um... Yeah, although I will note, I don't... I cannot tell what the governor actually got for this. He seems to have just given away one... As as it was recounted, he seems to have just given away, uh, you know, one of his sailors, John, for basically no reason, because the devil was like, I want him! Well, nah. so, so I think what's being described... So, I'll, I'll just read it. Uh, what they say is how he went to sauntering into the old flagship once, switching his tale about devilish easy and gentlemanlike, and inquiring if the old governor was at home. Well, he was at home and asked the devil what he wanted. The devil, switching his hoofs, ups and up and says, I want John. What for, says the old governor. What business is that of yours, says the devil, getting mad. I want to use him. Take him, says the governor. And by the Lord, Flask, if the devil didn't give John the Asiatic cholera before he got through with him, I'll eat this whale in one mouthful. And I think what this is kind of suggesting is that the, uh, the governor didn't credit the devil, like didn't believe that this was the devil. Maybe... Mm. Maybe he just, uh, uh, you know. Like, I mean, it's it's. I don't think it's a very coherent story. Yes, but obviously the implication is just meant to be the devil can do bizarre things like giving someone cholera and killing them. Yeah, yeah. I I really don't know that I like have a sense of what exactly the story is meant to confuse. He says that you know the devil is a curious chap and a wicked one. I tell you, but um, the story itself I think lacks any kind of structure or deal or understanding of what's going on it's purely like eh, the devil does things sometimes yeah yeah i mean i i I feel like the to me what it's communicating is the danger of disbelieving in the devil Mm. where like if you just say kind of casually like okay fine take this person because it's like well i don't believe that you actually can take this person like Mm. well then he'll he'll up and do that so uh, I think this is Stubb kind of trying to back up his claim and say, like, well, Fadala is really is the devil. And if you question that, you may be in danger. Um. Yep. Also, I truly love this uh, little exchange where Flask says, also, after Stubb insults Flask's literary tastes, mm-hmm. uh, he says that, um, you know, uh, 
uh, Flask is like, I, I think I've, I've heard something like that, but I'm not sure where. And he says, three Spaniards, adventurers of those three bloody-minded soldados. Did you read it there, Flask? I guess you did. And apparently, uh, three Spaniards was a uh, popular novel with uh, lo- of lowbrow taste. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, it is very funny that Stubb is telling what is clearly some kind of like bit of sailor's folklore, right? The story about the devil, and then he's like, oh, but if you were reading the novel Three Spaniards, that would be even lower class. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think his statement is, I'm telling you a true story gets passed around. You read novels, <laughs> lowbrow trash. Yeah, I you guess You don't so. know anything. And then um, also, you know, Flask asked, do, do you spo- Stubb, do you suppose that the devil you were speaking of just now was the same you say is now on board the Pequod? Yeah, basically, like, Flask is is really kind of questioning the specifics of this devil story. Um, you know, first he asks, like, okay, do you mean the same devil? And stuff is like, yes, I mean the same devil. Well, he specifically says, doesn't the devil live forever? Whoever heard that the devil was dead? Did you ever see any parson wearing mourning for the devil? Yeah, so so that's his, his argument for how the devil can be in this story that I guess is set a long time ago. Yeah, and I think more generally it's just like, yes, every time someone says the devil, they mean the devil, Flask. Don't yeah. be dull. And then uh, Flask is like, well, wait, how old do you think he is? And Stubb basically says, infinitely old. Yeah, yeah. And specifically, it's how old do you suppose Fadala is, Stubb? And Stubb, who's insisting is the devil, has to say, you know, arbitrarily old. As yeah. old as the world. Yes. Um, and, uh, and then Flask asks, I think, a very reasonable question, which is like, oh, okay, but um, now if he's the devil and uh, he's, he's ancient and he's going to live forever. What was with your plan to pitch him overboard? Oh, we kind of skipped over that. Yeah, yeah, um, but, that only touches on briefly. But earlier when Stubb was saying, you know, uh, I don't trust Fadala, I think he's the devil, he said, he, he basically suggested, he didn't directly say, but he heavily implied, if I get the chance, I'll pitch him overboard. Mm, yeah. uh, and Flask was like... I don't like, like that chat, Stubb. Yes, and Flask is like, um, so what was the point of that plan if he's the devil? Uh, and Stubb is like, well... Uh, uh, also, I gotta say, he basically gives the same plan that, like, um, Steel Kilt had, which is, uh, you know, if I ever get a chance of a dark night, he's standing hard by the bullocks, and no one by. Look down there, Flask, pointing into the sea with a peculiar motion of both hands. I will I, Flask. Yeah, no, it's, you're right. That is basically what Steel Kilt was going to do to, um, what's his name? Extra the- head trauma. Um, to the, the mate. That jerk. Let's just say that jerk and move on. Yeah, I'm forgetting his name as well. But anyhow, um, yeah, and, and Stubb argues that, you know, I just uh, give him a good ducking anyhow, which is basically just like... Funny back. Yeah, I just do it for spite. Uh, yeah, yeah, and, and uh, like, I mean, I think there's a little bit of a meaning here, which is like, you know, if the devil is eternal, if these evil impulses and influences are always going to keep coming back, What's the point in, like, ignoring them one time? What's the point in trying to be, you know, vigilant against them? Well, I'll duck him now, and I'll duck him again later. I'll just, I'll keep ducking the devil in the drink. Yes. Uh, and uh, Flask asks, like, well, what if he tries to fight back? And Stubb is like, I would beat the devil up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flask, do you suppose I'm afraid of the devil? Who's afraid of him except the old governor who doesn't dare, dares and catch him and put him in double darbies as he deserves? Let's him go about kidnapping people, I, and signed a bond with him that all the people the devil kidnapped, he'd roast for him. There's a governor. And it's like, I feel like there has to be a specific governor he's referencing in these stories, or this makes no goddamn sense. Yeah, there's clearly, like, more to this story about the governor's dealings with the devil, that, and Stubb is just kind of summarizing it and alluding yeah. to it. 
Um, <sighs> and yeah, and Flasky's like, do you think, do you think Fadala wants to kidnap Captain Ahab? I can't tell if he's being, like, sarcastically, like, really, do you really think that? Or if he's being, like, wide-eyed. I can't remember Flask, whether Flask would do one or the other. Yeah, hard to say. I mean, I will say that, you know, uh, it, I don't think it's a totally, like, foolish question in that, like, Stubb has said, I think Ahab has made a deal with the devil for his soul. Yeah. Uh, so the question is, like, okay, do you think the devil is gonna, like, run off with Ahab at some point? Um, and, uh, you know, Stubb kind of doesn't answer that question, but just says, again, I'm gonna kick the devil's ass. Yeah, yeah, he also specifically says something I think is very suggestive, which is, you know, um, I'll grab into his pocket for his tail, take it to the capstan, give him such a wrenching and heaving that his tail will come off short at the stump. Do you see? And then, I'd rather guess when he finds himself docked in that queer fashion, he'll sneak off without the poor satisfaction of feeling his tail between his legs. So, you know, this is referencing the idea of sneaking off with your tail between your legs, but he's definitely threatening to rip the devil's dick off. Yeah, yeah, not a little bit. Um, and, uh, it's like, well, the last question, what will you do with the tail, Stub? Do with it? Sell it for an ox whip when we get home. What else? And then the last question, really the only question that needed to be asked this entire time. Are you serious? Like, do you mean what you say? And at that point, they reach the ship, and Stubb is like, hmm, mean or not mean, here we are at the ship. He's, he's not gonna... Yeah, yeah. He, he's not gonna... He has just been shooting the shit and saying a bunch of really goofy stuff. And Flask has been trying really hard to figure out if Stubb is being serious, which, to be fair, is also how Stubb's rowers experience life. Yeah, yeah, this is clearly just, like, Stubb doing some Stubb shit. Uh, yep, but now the, um, the whale gets tied up on the larboard side, the port side, and Flask was right. The, um, Pequod is now counterbalancing the sperm whale's head with the right whale's head. Yes, uh, and... There's, you know, it was an even keel, even though there's a lot of strain on the mast. Yeah, and, uh, Ishmael makes a cute little, uh, intellectual metaphor about this. Um... So when on one side you hoist in Locke's head, you go over that way. But now, on the other side, hoist in Kant's, and you come back again, but in very poor plight. Thus some minds forever keep trimming boat. Oh, you foolish, throw all these thunderheads overboard, and then you will float light and right. Uh, Ishmael's just like, no thoughts, head empty. Yeah, absolutely. And given that he has enough education to know who those scholars are, and to be able to be like, yeah, Locke and Kant have different approaches to things, it's... You know, there's not an obvious intellectual dichotomy there, but they are major philosophers of the time. You could be putting in dialogue or using to, you know, sort of uh, steer away from just falling entirely into one or the other. But he thinks all that is unnecessary. Just don't read them in the first place. You don't have to worry. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I uh, at first I was like, oh, there must be some kind of, you know, actual sort of historical contrast or like different sides of the debate that Locke and Kant are on. And I mean... Obviously, they're two very different philosophers that there are big differences in their philosophy, but it's not like there's some, you know... It's not like the the, the Kant and J.S. Mill distinction that you might make, or, or Bentham, where it's like, oh, well, on one hand you have deontological morals, and on the other hand you have utilitarian morals. There's no, like, at least not that I'm aware of, easy dichotomy of schools that Locke and Kant fall into. They're both major Enlightenment philosophers, if I remember correctly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they are both the kind of philosophers you would learn in school as Ishmael, though, I think is part of what's going on here. Yes, they are certainly, like, part of the philosophical canon in, in the 19th century and now. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, 
Then we have a bit of discussion of how to disassemble a right whale, though, since they're basically just taking the head and releasing the rest, it's not as involved. Yeah, under also, under normal circumstances, you would basically cut off the baleen parts of the right whale's head and bring mm. them on board, but they don't do that in this case, which I think, you know, is underlines uh, that Flask is probably correct, and this is being done for, like, obscure, superstitious reasons, because they are certainly not trying to process this in the way that you would if it was actually... You I know. mean, or it's being done because they want to keep sperm whale's head for longer, and, like, here's the thing, the idea of, oh, well, you have a sperm whale's head and a right whale's head on either side, that won't capsize, and on the one hand, you could take that as, ah, it's a charm against capsizing, on the other hand, you could take it as, ah, you no longer have one giant wave on one side, you have equally straining sides, so you are no more likely to capsize than previously. Yeah, like, that's... there's a very practical reason you might do something like this if you don't plan to immediately process the sperm whale head. That's a fair point, yeah. Um, like, this is a very mechanical and practical reason behind it that Stub and Flask aren't even taking into consideration. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, one thing, though, is very clear, which is that they are not using this sperm whale. Like, it is not a... This right whale. Sorry, the right whale, yes. Yeah. It, it is not... It's not being, like, processed for sale in any way. Um, yeah, yeah, it's it's just heavy. Yes. Um, and then, as the last uh, paragraph of the chapter explains, Meantime, Padala was calmly eyeing the right whale's head, and ever and anon glancing from the deep wrinkles there to the lines in his own hand. And Ahab chanced so to stand that the Parsi occupied his shadow, while, if the Parsi's shadow was there at all, it seemed only to blend with and lengthen Ahab's. So there's this, like, image, and I think this is consistent throughout the book, of uh, Fidala as, like, part of Ahab's mind, or, like, something within his shadow. Not necessarily, like, a devil on his shoulder, but, like, some kind, because I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. I think, I, I think this entire chapter is about making it really obvious how ridiculous it is to see Fidala as the devil. Mm -hmm. But there is something going on where Fidala dwells in Ahab's shadow and is, like, present for him alone. And is his advisor. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um. And uh, as the crew toiled on, laplandish speculations were bandied among them concerning all these passing things. I'm assuming that's meant to be superstitious. Yeah, there's a, there, there was a, an association of Lapland with witches or witchcraft. Yeah, that, that tracks for me. There's a bunch of early 1800s works I know and like even like early 1900s that associated like Lapland and uh, like Scandinavia with um, with superstition and like uh, weird pagan survivalism and stuff. Yeah. Uh, which is really funny nowadays whereby like associations for Sweden have absolutely nothing to do with like witchcraft to run into like in Lord Dunsany's The Moon Pool a Swedish like nanny who knows all the weird secrets because of her Swedishness of course and her Scandinavianness and you know the Scandinavians they're very like witchy and superstitious and so can rightly sense that something is not right yeah that is kind of funny yeah it's, it's just completely out of date as like stereotypes go yeah at least in my understanding of popular culture. I mean, I feel like uh, the the one uh, perhaps slight remnant of this would be, like, uh, associate What? York. Well, I was about to say <laughs> associations that I have with, like, metal. Oh, yeah, that actually, you know, that that's also solid. I just, I just think York's charming. Uh, yeah, no, she's, she's, she's a fascinating figure. Um, <laughs> she's definitely pretty witchy. Yeah, uh, see, see? But, like, I, I think but that... Yes, no. 
a lot of Scandinavian metal is like pagan. <laughs> yes, yeah, and no, and there's certainly people who you know do reconstructed pagan stuff. They're very interested in that. It's, I think, the difference is here between like the idea of like, I would say like the superstitious poor people image that's being sort of brought in with Laplanish yeah. like the idea of like the superstitious peasants versus you know people who are interested in reconstruction interested in this tradition is a very different connotation when you bring them up in a book yes no definitely that, that is very true um <sighs> but yeah um so yeah we've had I don't know we've got I feel like we could maybe uh draw these chapters together with themes of superstition uh, weird ideas about religious ideas about how the world works. Um, obviously, Ishmael's are a little bit more, you know, normal to us because we keep reading Ishmael. <laughs> but I think that, you know, we've got uh, Gabriel in the first chapter and the devil in the third. Yeah, no, that's fair. Yeah, these chapters are not, like, totally disconnected from no, each other. No, no, there's, there's a gradient of topics across this boat. It very rarely takes a hard left turn. Yeah, and there, we're definitely in all of these chapters. Did I, I say this boat instead of this book? <laughs> yes, you did. You've made, uh, that, you've made that mistake multiple times before on the podcast. Yeah. And also just, like, in our personal lives sometimes. Yeah. Look, I like both boats and books. And, and you... You're deeply engaged with a boat book. I don't think you can be blamed. Yeah, yeah. I just, I feel very silly when I realize it. But, um, yeah, no, I, I think a lot of what's going on in all of these chapters is, like, uh, a heavy sort of building of, like, supernatural mood, you know? Oh, yeah, since the beginning of the book, really. Yeah, but but I think it's, it's, it's being laid on especially thick in these three chapters. Yeah, yeah, and especially with, like, whether or not, I think that Gabriel, who claims for himself a certain prophetic mantle, uh, and it aligns himself with Moby Dick, and is now indirectly contrasted with Fidala, who is assumed to be devilish and is aligned against Moby Dick. And I think that's very interesting, that there is this consistent alignment of Ahab is a blasphemer, Ahab is an ungodly man, he has set out to challenge God in some fashion, but then when you see Gabriel, who openly says Moby Dick is God, he's an idolater, he's a wild prophet. But to some extent, both of them are straying from the sort of, like, what you might say is the assumed center of Starbuck, which is that God is in his heaven and Moby Dick's just a whale. And frankly, I don't think Starbuck's been particularly present recently. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, it does sort of feel like, on some level, to have, like, a full kind of metaphysical account of Moby Dick is in some way to step outside of the realm of like acceptable Protestant understandings in the world. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, I think that is the case. And I mean, I personally, uh, I am of Ahab's party most of the time. Mm -hmm. I am, I'm well prepared to be an Ophite about it, uh, not in the sense of, of worshipping uh, Moby Dick, but of saying that it in some way represents a divine yet malevolent force. But that's an interpretation, and it's just what I find most aesthetically pleasing. Um, but I do think that there's this sort of, like, weighing of, oh, here is, you know, here is someone who is more Christian than Starbuck, more obsessively de dedicated to this, who has gone beyond just saying, oh, well, the natural world is the way it is, and that is providence, to saying, no, Moby Dick is specifically the avatar and representative of God. God is like that, not just, like, the world is like that. And... On the other hand, you have Ahab, who has set himself against Moby Dick and all he represents, and is, I keep using leagued with, because it got used in the first chapter we read, and it's such a good phrase, mm -hmm. who is leagued with Fidala, who is, you know, obviously uh, 
not Christian, from somewhere else bringing in some kind of knowledge and approach that I'm sure uh, Ishmael would categorize as pagan. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> I I will be very interested to see if Fadala does anything, because we have been given to understand that you know, that Ahab brought Fidala on board for some purpose. And like, you know, on some level it's... On some to level, have a crew. Yes, that Ahab wanted his own specific crew, his like hand-picked men, and Fidala is the mate of that crew. So there's that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, But, you know, lots of discussion has abounded about whether Fidala has like powers. And I'm not mm-hmm. saying I'm not saying I expect him to cast a spell. Um, <laughs> He's cast a spell on me. Yeah. In that I think Fidala's cool. But like, uh, I, I would be very interested to see you know, whether there is any suggestion of, like, Fadala doing something that other people, that, like, just a skilled mate or a skilled harpooner couldn't do. Yeah, I mean, there's this implication here that he gave the idea to hang the right whale's head across, and the idea that he is skilled in all these little charms and superstitions. I think that it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that develops, but I definitely think there's a certain aspect here as well of, you know, the same impulse that had Ahab be like, ah, yes, my pagan knights about the harpooners. Ahab wants non-Christians. Ahab wants people who will be enlisted against the white god. Uh, You know, I think with all the racial implication that that sentence could have. Yes. um, In his crew. And so uh, Fadala and his, and the um, the Indonesian crewmen, was it Indonesian? Philippine. The Philippine crewmen who, um, uh, joined him are, you know, uh, precisely that sort of impulse. He's trying. He's enlisting these uh, these isolados, these people of island nations from around the world, but specifically not Christian ones. Yeah, no, I think you're as, right. As the book, you know, frames it and understands it, I don't want to in any way claim this is accurately representative of like cultures in the world. Sure, uh, you're also kind of making me think about, uh, you know, when you mentioned this idea that. Um, you know, Ahab, that kind of the, the harpooners, because they are non-white and non-Christian, that they are in some sense like closer allied to Ahab. And there was that, if you'll recall, listeners, that was uh, emphasized in the scene where Ahab swore everyone to his purpose. He kind of specifically singled out the harpooners as opposed to the mates. Yes, and he specifically had the mates act as squires to the harpooners. He reversed the normal order, which in this book is gen- that is like, the way the whaling world works normally is that, I mean, frankly, uh, non-white like sailors and skills and muscle is under the control of Yankee profit motives and white men who have this like you know Protestant capitalist idea of how to make you know success from this. And this is the great power of America, more or less explicitly stated in um, you know. Ishmael's uh, early thoughts on like the American naval presence is that by having this multicultural thing, it's not like a modern, it's not like a melting pot conception of multiculturalism. It isn't a modern, more, it isn't a more recent, more like, you know, frankly, functional and progressive model of like, you know, pluralism. No, this is like a hierarchical fusion, which allows for certain qualities to be taken from different cultures and create this ultimate, I mean, in this case, the ultimate weapon to surpass Metal Gear to attack a god. God, you doofus. Look, I'm just saying that I would watch the Moby Dick anime, like, five times. Oh, yeah, no, me too, for sure. Um, I also, uh, what I was reminded of when we were talking about this is uh, Mm -hmm. the thing that 
Queequeg said in our last election. Um, oh, right, that. Yeah, yeah. which, you know, uh, difficult to, to quote directly, but I'm talking about the time when Queequeg was basically talking about sharks. Yes. And said that, you know, uh, it's suggested that whatever God made sharks is like evil or like terrible. Or I think I would say pagan specifically because what he, what he said was, and you know, and I think obviously so it's a racist joke. The way it's put in the book is that it has Queequeg, a Pacific Islander saying, uh, whether it was the God of Fiji or the God of Nantucket, both islands that created sharks. Uh, That God was a, I mean, what he says is, a damn Native American, but, you know, with the obvious... Hey, I, I, that's a bridge too far. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but, but the, the point is, the phrase, especially with the I dialect, is directly taking, like, an American sneer word for, you know, non-Christian, pagan, other, wild, un, unsettled, uncivilized. Yeah. And the joke there is that Queequeg is the one saying this, and he's, you know, the prince of the cannibals, everyone's best pagan friend, Queequeg. Um... But it's also implying that he's buying into, or that it is fundamental, this dynamic of wild versus tame, pagan versus Christian. But that's actually not what I was trying to talk oh, about. Oh, sorry. I was trying to talk about the fact that it implies that he has kind of bought into Ahab's idea that, like, God is inimical to humanity. Mm. Like, he's basically saying the God that made sharks made them to be dangerous to me. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Sorry, and I think that's I think that's tied into it. Though. Yes, like, no, you're connected right. connected to this whole framework. I was just still thinking about the wild, you know, religious and, and racial categories that Ishmael, and I think Melville, is framing the book through. Yes, no, you're absolutely right. Those are, like, deeply, deeply part of that statement. And I think, I think all of that stuff being so complicated and weird and, you know, offensive is what... Uh, what uh, that was what really focused our attention last episode, which yeah. means I didn't notice the like God is malevolent implication yeah, until that's, now. That's very fair. Um, also, I gotta say the, the listeners are really missing out because we've been making wild hand gestures through this entire conversation <laughs> to try and keep it in control under control. I, I think the better part <laughs> is when we're talking about like ship maneuverings and like how the boats were going around the Pequod and like chasing the whale, and we were definitely moving our hands a lot during that too. Yeah, the thing is, it's not like we're actually really looking at each other's hands. We're mostly like looking at the book or our notes, and the result is that we're just sort of both wildly making arm gestures for ourselves alone. Yeah, when we were not recording in the same room, uh, did you find yourself gesturing? Do you remember? Sometimes, but mostly then I was sitting in a different chair where I had to hold the book in my lap. And that meant that at least one of my hands was kind of... uh, Occupied? Occupied, exactly. Whereas here, because I set the book down next to me on the couch, I can do the weird little gesture I do where my hands circle around each other to my heart's content. I have had both people in my seminars and people in, like that I have TA'd for in grad school tell me that I do that gesture, and yeah. they've never seen someone else do it before. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I can confirm. Uh, we'll have to take a picture of you doing this, you realize, because you've described uh, it in detail, but no one's going to know what you're talking about. I choose to remain a mystery, like the depths <laughs> of the ocean, as regards my specific weird hand gesture. Yeah, that's fair. Um, do you I'm making a TikTok of me being weird about whales. <laughs> All right, we're we're getting punchy. I think it's time to stop recording. Oh, I think we should just keep going. We we could delve this deck. <laughs> we can see what's down here. Uh, 
What tune is it you sing for, man? A dead whale or a stove boat. 